0: Hey friends, I'm Christine Chappell, and you're listening to the Hope and Help podcast from IBCD, where we host biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. In this episode, I chat with David and Krista Dunham about their new book, Table for Two, Biblical Counsel for Eating Disorders. For more help on the topics we discussed today, visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help, where you can access notes from today's episode and browse related resources from our digital library. Before we get started, let me introduce you to our guests. David Dunham is a pastor and biblical counselor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Roseville, Michigan. And Krista Dunham has served as a women's mentor, biblical counselor, and curriculum developer for various women's and children's ministries. Krista also has a degree in early childhood education from Ohio University. Hey there, David and Krista. Thank you so much for joining us for the show today.
1: Yeah, thank you for having us. It's great to be here, Christine.
0: I am super excited to talk with you about your brand new book, Table for Two, Biblical Counsel for Eating Disorders. But before we get started in today's conversation, would each of you spend a few minutes sharing a little bit about the book and why you wanted to work together in writing it?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a great question. I mean, we were very excited about the opportunity to share, you know, the The subject is something that we lived through, and so part of our desire was to write the kind of book that we needed to read back when Krista was struggling with an eating disorder, and I didn't know what to do to be helpful, and so, you know, we really wanted to create something that would have guided us through the right right steps, and so the value of the book, we think, is that it's written from those dual perspectives of a sufferer and a helper.
2: Yeah, when we first got started, it was more of that we saw a need that needed to be met, like he had said, that we kind of had pieced together things that we read and things that people had helped us with along the way. And like he said, it would have been helpful to have that together in one spot and known that someone went through it and was able to have victory. But at the same time, I think we sort of fell into what became like a practical aspect as well, that we just both help each other in a way that I don't know that we could have done it by ourselves.
1: I mean, I think Chris is a really great storyteller and she writes really well on that end. I mean, some of my favorite parts of the book are parts where she has, you know, crafted this illustration and um, communicated powerfully the emotional effects of things. So she does a really good job with that. And then, you know, my sort of uh, brain works in categories and organiz- organizing thoughts. And, uh, and so we really were able to complement each other really well, I think, on that front. So I, I, I think that's what, uh, what made the book as, as helpful on that end. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think both of you guys, the writing just really wove together nicely. And I agree what makes this book so unique, especially in the biblical counseling world. But I think just even in general, I have not seen a book that approaches any kind of counseling issue from the, the dual perspectives that you offer here. Because on one sense, you know, I'm someone who is working through and trying to heal from an eating disorder, you know, they can identify with Krista and how Krista is sharing her experience and and the various ways that she struggled but also found hope and help through God's word and through the ministry of other people, but also through physical care and all of the various components that that come along, you know, with that when it comes to disordered eating. But then David, you offer, you know, a place where the spouse or the caregiver or a friend even can identify with how hard it is to walk with someone who is struggling and so Krista, I appreciate your transparency in the book. I just said very, very much when I was a teenager, I struggled with disordered eating for a little while. And yeah, it, I related to a lot of what you shared in the book. Your writing came across as genuine and sincere. At one point you reveal that you wrote to your boyfriend at the time, who was David, became your husband. Um, but you wrote in a letter to him, kind of sharing your heart and, and confessing that this was something you were going through. and you write, quote, I'm really scared of what I'm doing to myself, but I don't know how to stop. Mm -hmm. So can you explain what you meant when you made this confession and maybe give us a sense as what the experience is for a person who is battling against an eating disorder?
2: Yeah. And I I think a statement that you made that I'd like to hear in other people is just saying, I struggled with this, you know, because, Mm -hmm. There's something to be said of all degrees of that, and it's a struggle no matter where you're at. So I would never want my story to come across as, well, just because you're thinking about food all the time, but it's not really coming out as much in your behavior, I wouldn't want someone to say, well, I'm not struggling. But as well, to to go to your point the quote you, you took from the book, there was a starting point where I felt control of what I was doing. I felt in control. So it started as just kind of only eating salads for lunch or going an extra time to the gym or something like that. And I felt like this feels pretty good. I'm in control of this. And there came a point to which I had had a bad car accident, which I um, Address in the book as well, and coming back from that i um I don't remember exactly at what point, but there was somewhat of a response to that. I came back to my room and I just ate all the food that there was available to me, and I didn't know what to do with that, and so I think that was the point where I felt like I was just staring down like mm. the belly of the beast, you know, I could see the teeth bared and everything of like What are you walking into? I think that was the point that I reached out to him. Mm -hmm. But I, I went through varying degrees of actually wanting his help after that, because it scared me enough to say, I don't know what's happening. This is frightening to me. But then when I started to see what some of that meant to play out, it freaked me out. I didn't mm-hmm. know what I was supposed to do. I didn't know how much he was going to ask me to do or what it even looked like to go beyond that point. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I just was staring down something. Mm-hmm. It scared me and I didn't know what to do. Yeah,
1: you were. You kind of had a love-hate relationship with help. You wanted help sometimes because you were scared and at other times you didn't want what help was going to ask of you.
0: David... I guess, just building off of her response in the moment as a young man, right, when Mm -hmm. you read this, what was your initial
1: response? Uh, It wasn't great. I mean, I was concerned for her, but, you know, we, we got married when we were pretty young. I was pretty immature, and so I think at the moment, I was probably very concerned and sort of hypervigilant and, you know, this is serious and, you know, we have to take action. But I also didn't know what to do. And so pretty quickly after reading it, I think I just kind of settled into it's a phase or uh, it's just a scary moment or, uh, you know, I just need to convince her that everything's fine and it'll all go away. Uh, And so I don't think I did a great job of really trying to understand her and her internal struggles. I mean, she was expressing she was afraid, and I didn't necessarily take that as seriously as she did. So I think in a lot of ways, uh, uh, I learned more the longer she struggled than, than I knew in the front.
0: Well, David, early in the book, you write, quote, many times during that first year of marriage, I asked my wife, what can I do to help you? She did not know the answer, and it put all the pressure on her. I meant well, but I hadn't taken the time to learn how to help her. Can you offer us some insight into that particular season of marriage and help us understand some of the challenges you faced in supporting your wife as she struggled with disordered eating?
1: Yeah, I mean, we were we were newly married, so we were young. Um, I think we were 21 when we got married. So, you know, neither of us had really lived a lot of life anyways. We were both still fairly self-focused. And so we had all the normal problems that newlyweds have, Uh, you know, adjusting to, you know, having this live-in roommate who has a lot of authority in your life and who can influence things for good or bad. And so, you know, we had some of those common initial struggles, and then those were exacerbated as more of the, the intensity of her struggles became evident. Uh, I think, you know, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to be helpful, I often ended up giving really simplistic advice, you know, you just need to do this, or you just need to do that. I often viewed her struggle through the lens of my own discomfort, you know, I don't like this, this is making me stressed, this is ruining, you know, my weekend plans, this is, and so I, I had a lot of those challenges. And then I think just not being able to really understand internally what she was struggling with and not being willing to ask questions or do my own research. or So th- those were all some of the, the challenges we had in that dynamic. I think on top of that, not being able to sort of know what I could do or what I shouldn't do, how do I get her help, You know, when's the right time to involve somebody even against her wishes or... Not knowing all of those things and knowing that sometimes she wanted my help and sometimes she didn't, you know, resulted in a lot of conflict for us, a lot of fighting, a lot of arguing. So there were a lot of moments where, you know, our relationship just really genuinely suffered, both from her sin and my sin.
0: Yeah, I remember speaking with someone on the podcast. I think it might have been Zach Eswine, but he mentioned about how, you know, we can tend to be really impatient with other people's Mm -hmm. brokenness. When people are suffering in some kind of capacity, we can just be super impatient. I know even just from my own experience, even as a parent, right, even as parents, we Mm -hmm. can see this dynamic at play when our kids are struggling with a particular issue and it's prolonged. And we don't really know what to do. You know, we just, again, can revert back to like what you said, David, those simplistic kind of uh, answers or those, those fix it strategies without really taking the time to number one, even consider what the Lord is trying to teach us about our own hearts in our care for this person. But then number two, you know, how does the Lord want us to engage and approach this person? Like you said, to move toward a greater understanding of the person's problem, you know, and I love that you just pointed out too, that even in the book saying that Krista didn't even necessarily know what Mm -hmm. you could do to help. And I think that's really important that you guys highlighted is that Because I think when someone's suffering or struggling in sin, they may, oh, well, I just need to do this, this, and this, you know, but it can blind us where we don't have any idea how to break free or how to even heal or or engage God in that moment. So I just, again, I'll, I'll probably say this too much during this interview, but Super super appreciative of the transparency as you both share about the difficulties and the challenges from the perspective of even a married a marriage mm-hmm. in the strain that this yeah. really put on you as husband and wife. Again, I think is just super helpful. So I guess I'd like to ask a question for both of you. Um maybe I'll have Krista answer first. So Krista, this this will be for you first, and then I'll have David follow after, but As you mentioned before, part of what makes this book unique is that there are two perspectives offered. So one of the person who is struggling with an eating disorder, and then one of the person who's trying to care for the person struggling. Um, You caution in the book, however, that both parties need to be aware of falling into the trap of a self-sufficient mindset, writing, quote, whether we are a sufferer or a helper or both, we all need someone to walk alongside us. So Krista, would you maybe help us explore that from the perspective of the person who is suffering? You know, what is the temptation to self-sufficiency and why is that dangerous?
2: Yeah, I think of self-sufficiency is a lot of self-deception, like you're just convincing yourself that you've got it when you really don't. And there's various reasons for that. I think one of which is some of the things that you have to come out and say are embarrassing, they make you look bad. And so you think, well, if I have enough handle on this, then I'm not going to say anything because I don't want to risk making myself look bad for no reason. So if I can somehow get this back under control, then you know i'm gonna i'm gonna feel silly that i came out and tried to ask for help when i didn't really need to when it gets challenging is i think that your sin does deceive you as well it's not just you telling yourself there's a trap within it that you keep falling deeper into that you're not realizing because you you start to get to the point of being blind by your own sin and it's it's really at that point god created us to need other people to help us out when we don't quite have it and like i said Mm -hmm. it just you're feeding yourself more lies on top of lies Mm -hmm. and you don't even realize that you're doing it and you have so you have to have someone to pull you out at that point.
1: Yeah. I mean, even at that point, what you're saying, like just being able to see the lie for the lie, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. Having somebody who can ask those questions or probe those issues or point something out that helps you to kind of pull out of the fog a little bit and see the the truth. Yeah.
0: David, then would you help us explore the temptation to self-sufficiency from the perspective of the helper?
1: Yeah. You know, in one sense, it's a little easier as a, um, the outsider, the the helper to recognize that you don't necessarily have all the answers and especially when it's such an intense issue even even a life-threatening issue you can be pretty quickly aware that you are limited in what you can do. And yeah, you know, the tendency towards pride and ego is in all of us and so, you know, when I think about some of my tendencies, you know, it was easy for me to think I saw the whole picture. It was easy for me from the outside to look you know, at Krista's insecurities or her choices or the things that were making her anxious about a dinner or whatever, and to feel like, oh, well, that's silly because I can see X, Y, and Z, and I, I've got the whole picture. And if she would just see things the way I'm seeing them, then she would not feel the way she's feeling. And so there's that arrogance that comes in that moment to, to think that I really do see more than I see and that I am able to just sort of fix this problem with facts, If I just tell her you know this is what you're doing to yourself or uh, this is what the risks are or this is what the truth is if I just tell her facts then she'll change sort of information transference leads to transformation kind of a thing and and that's that is just arrogant the truth was I didn't know all the facts and the truth was I didn't really know what her experiences were like and uh, apart from trying to understand the fears and the, the sort of internal logic that she had to that, I wasn't really going to be helpful. So I think some of the, the humility is, is being willing to admit that we don't know everything, we don't have all the answers, and we're not able to fix someone else. You can't repent for someone, you can't heal someone. And so being willing both to rely on the Lord and get help ask questions from other professionals, listen to answers from your the suffering person. So to just admit that you need help even in being helpful.
0: So when you guys were writing this book, you did a really great job of just being super compassionate and mindful of the physical components of the struggle and also the, the spiritual and emotional challenges that people are going through. And Um, even the sin struggles in the heart and and the motives. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But I wanted, before we even go further into this conversation, maybe have you spend a few minutes just to address kind of the the angle that you're taking with your approach to this book. Because sometimes people are coming from the perspective that an eating disorder and being labeled um, with one is an illness or a disease. And then we have people on the other end of the spectrum that would say this is purely a sin issue. And so can you maybe just, click? off? offer some, um, some clarity, you know, even how the scriptures help us to perhaps have a perspective that is maybe more holistic in nature when it comes to the challenges and, and the struggles of a needing disorder?
1: Sure. Uh, that's, that's a great question. And, you know, we've utilized um, a, a philosophy of addiction counseling that sort of helps us navigate a number of these types of issues. Uh, and, and you know, most of the research we uh, will talk about eating disorders as a type of addictive habit, an addictive behavior, and so that it has components to it that parallel what we see in in other types of addictions. And so we found that this this rubric we use for thinking about addictions is really helpful for this. And what we recognize um, is that we make choices, sometimes sinful choices, and those lead to more choices. And the more that we repeat those choices, the more they become habits, uh, habituated patterns that we just sort of default to when we're stressed, anxious, angry, insecure, whatever. And so we, we believe that addictive habits have both a choice and a slavery component to them. Uh, I really love the way Ed Welch talks about slavery in his uh, book, A Banquet in the Grave, where he calls addictions uh, voluntary slavery. And so it communicates this, this truth that we are both making choices and we, we feel a sense of bondage. And the scriptures, I think, do help us think about that because Jesus can say, whoever sins is a slave to sin. So we have both the, the choice to sin and slavery to sin. You know, Paul can talk both about not submitting your members and both not submitting your members to be slaves of unrighteousness. So there's this duality that the scripture presents to us that we make choices, we're morally responsible, and yet we can get to certain places in those choices where they feel like they're enslaving, they feel like we're trapped, where I would choose to do something different, but I can't seem to get there. And so I think with eating disorders, you know, we can recognize that there are choices being made, there's levels of responsibility that we do have to acknowledge and own. And yet, at the same time, it doesn't always feel like I'm in control of what I do. It does feel like I'm trapped and enslaved and that i'm I'm not just sinning, I'm suffering.
2: Yeah, and I think that I even struggled as we were writing the book to come to my proper conclusion of it, really in application to my own story because it's just, In combination with what I already struggle with, where I was just like, this is all my doing and I'm going to get myself out of this. And this is all about sin. And so you need to basically get your butt in gear and take care of this, which is not the idea of sin even at all. It's, you know, run to God and repent. So I was still just doing that kind of thing and not realizing it. But I think we really are just a combination of our circumstances and our choices as well. And it's hard to draw a firm line between the two. And so I think what our editors even helped me to do is to say, you know, let's bring this story into play where you know what happened after the, the car accident and you know some of the circumstances that were before that. And so there's there's this whole dynamic coming into play where, yes, I was and am a sufferer, and God recognizes that and has an answer for that, and I am a sinner at the same time. It doesn't have to be this firm line. God deals with all of it, and and Christ came and died and lived perfectly for all -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. So Krista,
0: I maybe building off of that then, could you tell us a little bit more about the physical consequences of disordered eating, I think it's really important, especially for someone, well, for both, the sufferer who may not be even aware of what's mm-hmm. happening and taking place in their body as they are restricting their eating or binging, as you mentioned, or whatever the disorder eating might look like, um, they may not be aware of the damage. Uh, long-term even, the long-term effects, that may be you know, a consequence of those choices. And also, I guess, too, for the person who's caring for the sufferer, they may not have any idea. Like David said, you know, you just go ahead, here's what you need to do. Step one, two, three, and you'll fix it and you'll be fine. They may not have any idea about long-term effects or consequences on their radar either. So maybe can you help us just uh, be mindful and maybe explain even some of those consequences just so that we have kind of a basic knowledge of what to look out for?
2: Yeah. So I'm thinking like short-term, there's a lot um, that comes right away with just fighting off infection. You know, a lot of people don't realize that that can come pretty quickly with taking away nutrients that your body needs. Your body can't fight off infection how it should. So that was some of the signs that I saw right away, but didn't totally connect that I just was having a lot of infections that wouldn't resolve themselves. Some other things that sufferers don't realize is happening inside of their body that as you're depleting these nutrients, just your organs can't function properly. So there can be, you know, damage to certain organs, heart, liver, Mm -hmm. things like that, that they don't see happening. And that can happen slowly over a period of time. Women, particularly, deal with fertility issues that can be a little longer lasting than you realize. And then just, I know just from my own experience, I can speak to, there's just some bone depletion as Mm -hmm. well that I continue to have to deal with because some of that, while it can be restored and things can be done to help, there are some damages that just Mm -hmm. aren't rebuilt. And so I think just getting help as quickly as possible for those types of things um, is really beneficial. And I think we did well with kind of encouraging that in the book that at whatever point you're at, you should probably get checked out because there's varying degrees to which it can affect your health.
1: Yeah, it can be really critical too. I mean, it's, uh, it's a life-threatening disorder. And uh, I think more people die from eating disorders than any other DSM diagnosed disorder. So it's, it's pretty critical that people get you know, that kind of uh, medical attention.
0: Well David you bring up the topic of compassion fatigue. I loved that you addressed this because I think it's it's so true and I think too what's really cool about this book is that even if you're not helping someone through an eating disorder, just the the perspective David that you offer just in terms of trying to help someone with a problem yeah. and what that looks like is so applicable to any kind of care for someone that you love really and I think people can really relate to this topic of compassion fatigue in relationships and which is specific to when someone we love is walking through a prolonged season of suffering so what do helpers need to know about when it comes to experiencing compassion fatigue what is it is there anything we can do to better prepare ourselves for long-term support
1: yeah, so I mean, compassion fatigue just real basically refers to getting worn out, trying to care for someone who's going through a prolonged suffering. Um, I think most of us, when someone first confesses something like an eating disorder or um they first you know express a particular sorrow or trial, we are gung ho about jumping in. we are are ready to rally, and we have lots of energy and and compassion, but Over time, as it feels like things aren't progressing at the pace we want them to, or perhaps they're not progressing at all, it becomes wearisome. You feel like you're giving a lot with no reward at times. And so I think, you know, a couple of things that I wish I had done early on. One, I wish I had gained enough knowledge to know what to expect. Um, I think my expectations were, you know, we would figure this out quickly and we would move on with our lives or even when Krista got, you know, started going to counseling, that she would get counseling, and that would fix everything. And in a couple months, it would all be behind us. And so, you know, having realistic expectations about the longevity of the problem, the potential longevity of the consequences, the ups and downs, uh, I hope our book is able to do that to communicate something of the challenges of it and the realistic expectations people should have. But then I think also just Talking with somebody, having a, a person that you can kind of share with, someone that you can receive encouragement from, someone you can receive prayer from. So, you know, having whether it's your own counselor or whether it's your pastor or a friend um, or just a, a sort of a godly person in your life, being able to share with them how you're struggling with your spouse's sorrows and trials and sin. You know, it, it, it would have been helpful to be able to say to someone else all the things that I was thinking, but that I knew I shouldn't say to Krista. To be able to kind of unburden my heart in those ways and say, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm thinking. Would you challenge my thoughts here? Would you challenge my discouragement? Would you pray for me? Would you comfort me? Would you encourage me? So I think having both realistic expectations and my own companion who could help bear that burden, uh, I think that would have gone a long way to fighting some compassion fatigue.
0: Yeah, it just goes back to that temptation to be self-sufficient, right, yes. in terms of just, I can handle this on my own, I don't need any help, I don't need someone, yeah. you know, to know about what's going on. And so, yeah, that's a really great um, reminder just of the importance of being in a body where you can get support, um, even just as the helper, How and how that's really a critical part of your care for your loved one. Now, Krista, I love that you, I mean, you both really did a wonderful job of making this book extremely practical. I mean, there's a wealth of biblical teaching and going into various, you know, the heart and motives and and all of that, you know, really nitty gritty work of, of trying to grow through this type of struggle. But one of the practical things that I found to be really helpful, I guess, is maybe something that... Either the sufferer or the caregiver could turn to, you called it a spectrum of readiness. And it was something that explained how someone might gauge their willingness to even get help. So, do you mind sharing and explaining what that spectrum of readiness is?
2: Yes, there are five different categories, starting with all out denial. You know, you get people that are saying they don't need help, they don't see that there's a problem. And then there's considering where you're starting to kind of recognize that something's wrong and not quite ready to make any changes yet. Investigating, you're kind of prepared to do something. Just not sure
1: what yet. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Then seeking is a little farther than that of trying to get guidance and help from someone and then completely ready is that you you don't want to turn back. You're willing to make the changes, Mm -hmm. all of those kinds of things. I think, What gets complicated is someone looks for the help and right away appears, oh, definitely ready. They're going to change. This is great. But then there's this struggle to fall back Mm -hmm. where I've seen even go like someone appear to be completely ready and slip all the way back into denial where it's not really necessarily where they had been to begin with. It was, I think they fell somewhere along the way.
1: This is a, an evaluative chart we can use all throughout the, the sort of counseling process. Where I am today doesn't necessarily mean where I'll be tomorrow. Uh, and so in one sense, I may be ready all out. I'll do whatever is asked of me today in this moment. Um, but, you know, we all struggle, like Paul says, I do the very thing I hate. And so, you know, to be able to evaluate myself, what am I feeling today? Where am I at today? And for a helper to be able to use that chart. And to say where is where's is my my loved one at today? Are they ready or are they more back at that sort of considering? I know I have a problem, but I'm not sure what it looks like to change yet. So I'm a little uneasy. And so, you know, kind of evaluating as you go. Because I think and you can speak about this as an individual, but but as a helper, when I know where my loved one is at on that spectrum it alters the way I interact with them. As a sufferer, I would think it's you're in a similar place.
2: Yeah, it's helpful to know, even daily or weekly, to know where you're at on this spectrum because you can respond in a different way and know that it's not definitive of your no. change. It can That's just good. be like, I need to recognize this and respond in a way that is helpful today to this certain level. So knowing that you could you know, tomorrow be more ready. You're just having a bad day mm-hmm. or, and as a helper, not to completely get hopeless as well. When you see, well, someone's back in denial, you just recognize how your, your help needs to change and adjust that. Not necessarily just, oh, they're in denial. That's it. You know, it's yeah. over. Yeah. We can even inform the your prayer life, to be honest, your prayer for oh, yeah. the person
0: who's suffering or their prayer as the sufferer, Lord, soften my heart, like help my unbelief, I believe, help my unbelief, you know, it just can totally even form the way you're engaging God. There are a lot of helpful tools such as the spectrum of readiness in this book, and so I just commend you both for really equipping the reader to, oh, okay. um, to implement these things in, in the real, real time in their everyday life. Now, David, Krista just offered the spectrum of readiness, but I wonder about what your encouragement would be for the helper whose loved one is at a stage where they do not believe they have a problem or that they are presently unwilling to get help. What does our compassionate biblical care look like in that situation?
1: Yeah, so a couple of thoughts come to my mind. The first thought is, you know, I want to do my best to communicate regularly with my loved one, my commitment to them. You know, sometimes a person's. Readiness to admit a problem is contingent on their insecurity. So, you know, if I don't feel if I feel like admitting I have a problem is gonna receive rejection, rebuke, dismissal, then I'm I'm really not going to share. So as a loved one, I want to keep reiterating my commitment to this person. I love you, I care about you. So I, I would want to sort of make that a major emphasis of my interaction, is just how invested I am in this person and that regardless of what happens, I'm, I'm committed to, to being with them. I, I think too, I would want to try and be able to point to factual things. So I, I would want to point to things that I'm observing, you know, maybe there's um, visible weight loss, maybe there's uh, an, a sort of an emaciated figure there. they are you know, bones are starting to protrude through skin. I would, I would want to point to those things as just a caution. Hey, this is what I'm, I'm seeing. It, it, it looks like this. I'm concerned about that. So I would want to try to point to any factual things that I could to try and help them have eyes to see what they're not willing to see yet. So I think commitment and conversation, just dialogue. I don't want to make every conversation a point of rebuke or concern or expressing, you know, their need to get help but I do want to keep repeating it at at some level so that they understand how serious it is and how serious of a concern it is. The the last thing I'll say on that is, depending on the severity of a person's condition, there may come a point where you have to insist on help even against their wishes. We really, we don't recommend that people do that. Um, We don't recommend that people just sort of automatically share their loved one's suffering and sin and and sort of unload that for them. But there are cases where it becomes critical to get people help, you know, uh, in our training classes at our church, I always say you, you can't help dead people. So, you know, if, if it becomes life threatening, you want to do what you need to do to intervene. Now we're not always capable of knowing all the life threatening things that are going on, but you know, if a person is having, you know, hospital visits um, if a person is having a, you know, more serious, regularly b- broken bones and those kinds of things, then we probably want to step up our, our efforts to intervene. And, and we may at some point say, I'm going to lovingly rat you out. And so involve some other people who can maybe apply some different pressure in some different ways, uh, always with the goal of love and compassion, never in a harsh and condemning way. But so seeking the right people to involve is, is important. And I think as a helper, that may mean you start by contacting a counselor and saying to them, this is what's going on in my loved one's life that I'm seeing, what should I do? Because you may not know what the right course of action is on your own, but you can ask for help and get insight.
0: Yeah, you can even um, get this book and that will help you offer some some insights and some practical things that you might do as a caregiver while you, you know pray and mm-hmm. wait on God to um, move your loved one yeah. to a, a position where they are ready to get and seek some help. Now, Krista... We only have time for a few more questions, and I wish I could just ask 20 more questions. (laughs) But I do want to spend, though, I think just a few minutes talking a little bit about the, the motives of someone who is battling with an eating disorder. I think this book does a really great job of carefully guiding the reader into some of the underlying heart issues that may be at work. I know that this is a huge topic, and maybe for our purposes uh, today, though, you can offer us some high-level points on why examining and understanding
2: our motives is important as a sufferer. I know what my motive was. It was more of, I can do this. I'm in control. I don't want God to help me. I just had in place this idea, if I work hard, I can achieve, and there's no reason why I can't. And so to focus in on my motive was more of, like we were talking about self-sufficiency, I don't need God kind of thing. Whereas there's other people that come in with a lot of fear, like something bad happened to me and I don't understand. And this is something that I can hold on to and I do understand. And so when you're coming at it, it's easy as a helper to just say, well, you're doing something wrong. So I'm going to, come at that. Whereas there's, there's a lot of fear that's behind it.
1: Yeah. I mean, knowing the motives allows you to know kind of how to tailor your approach, both as the sufferer and the sinner. So what do I need to address in order to, to get to a better place of stability? Um, what do I need to seek in the Lord that I'm seeking in my disordered habit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So understanding that motive gives us a, a better uh, plan of attack. Motive has to do with the, the logic behind why I do what I do, right? Um, the Bible talks about, you know, sort of more in the realm of the heart. You know, what do you love? What do you treasure? Uh, what do you value? You know, there's a, a saying in counseling circles, we do what we do because we want what we want. And so, you know, my, my habits have a logic. They, they work. They're giving me something. They're providing something for me. Uh, I want to understand more about what that is, so I can turn to the Lord for that instead of to my my eating.
2: We're taught as biblical counselors, just there are certain people who might need a kick in the pants, or there might be someone who just needs some really good encouragement mm. and to really know that motive. You can come at it in a better direction and not unintentionally defeat somebody who who's just scared. Awesome. Well, gosh, I really wish we could just keep talking, but I am
0: going to refer listeners to get a copy of the book. I haven't even been able to do it justice with only these these few questions because it is so robust. I mean, but it's not like 500 pages either. I think just you guys have both accomplished something that is is meaningful, um, insightful, compassionate, and practical, and all of it based on the foundation of Jesus Christ as our ultimate Hope and help for healing and just journeying through uh, a problem such as this. And so I would love to spend the last few minutes inviting both of you to do something I ask every guest of the Hope and Help podcast to do, which is to speak directly to the audience. So we'll have Krista go first and then David can follow after. Now, there may be someone listening to this episode, maybe even a married couple like yourselves, who knows firsthand what it is to do battle with an eating disorder and to try to care for someone who is suffering in this way what would you say to this listener to encourage them that they're not alone and that
2: there is hope and help for change through the power of jesus christ i think something that has always encouraged me is to look at the gospels and see how jesus responded to people who were suffering or even to people who were caught in some kind of sin mm-hmm he was compassionate and so just to have that picture in my head to know even that christ lived a perfect life in my place so that every time i was messing up and not getting it right he had lived those moments for me already perfectly and to know that on top of that he he died for those sins so that i could have a right relationship with god just changed so much about the way that i was living and to know that it wasn't just a broad idea that Jesus had taken care of it it was in those specific moments that i could find hope
1: on the suffer- on the helper side you, you do have a tendency to feel very alone because you're sometimes the only one carrying this burden for your spouse or you're holding this secret and i think to know that the lord knows to know that he is fully aware of all that's going on. He knows more than you do. He's been involved longer than you have and that you can trust this God who knows everything to guide you in the next steps. And I do think it's helpful to know the stories of other people. You know, we, our hope is that our story will be an encouragement to others to see that it's possible by God's grace and with God's help. It's possible to walk through this together. Um, I know, you know, Krista has has mentioned in the past. You know, reading other people's stories was an encouragement. They were sometimes hard to find um, all those years ago, but you know, uh, Elise Fitzpatrick had written a book, um, "Love to Eat, Hate to Eat," which is a, a little bit of a different uh, take on the subject uh, than ours. But but what an encouragement that was to read a story of someone who had struggled and who had found the the scriptures helpful. And so just to know that there were other people in that sense. So look for those testimonies, uh, look for those stories. It uh, certainly is our hope that our book will provide some encouragement that you're not alone and that God does offer uh, help. I think uh, I go back to Philippians 1-6 often, uh, he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion, but there's an absolute confidence we can have in God that he will help us to navigate problems.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for those words of encouragement. Before we close out, you know, would you guys mind just quickly touching on the resources that are included in the book? I mean, there's, there's questions, charts, and maybe you can touch that just so people can know um, they're not just getting, you know, the chapters, but there's actual additional content in the book as well.
1: One of our goals for the book was to provide some guidance for the types of conversations and interactions that couples could have. Um, you know, that was the thing that, you know, I specifically felt like I didn't do well was I didn't know how to talk to Krista about what was going on. I didn't know what to ask, what was helpful, not helpful. And so I kind of left all the conversation responsibility on her. If she wanted to talk, I would listen. If she didn't, I wasn't gonna bring it up. And I think that you can answer, but I I, I think that tended to make you feel more alone in the struggle.
2: Yeah, and to really have an opportunity to be asked questions that maybe a person wouldn't even know to ask, that's what I found really helpful, you know, even in writing the book was just, as we were trying to think out these kind of questions, having both answers from him and answers from me to sort of open our lives out together mm-hmm. and not just constantly be in this position of I'm, I'm receiving help. And, but there are opportunities through the book for mm-hmm. David to say, like, this is my life and this is what I struggle with or, you know, and vice versa so that the person suffering doesn't always have to feel like I'm in this position and you're in that position. And
1: yeah. Yeah. A little bit more mutuality. So the end of every chapter, there's um, exercises, uh, questions to ask one another. There's sometimes sort of self evaluative charts. So we asked the helper to evaluate their listening skills, for example. There's a number of different self-evaluative charts. There's a a couple of recommended exercises to practice together. And so a lot of just conversation guides. So it it was our ambition to make it a practical resource that could help propel conversations and potentially healing for, for couples in the midst of this.
0: Great. Well, I definitely encourage the listeners to check out a copy of this brand new resource. If you're interested, you can scroll down to the show notes of this episode, click the link there. That will take you to a page on IBCD's site where you can access all of that information. David and Krista, if there's someone listening who wants to get connected with you in whatever other resources you have available, is there somewhere that they can go online to, to follow your ministry?
1: You know, I think I always try to tell people there's way better stuff out there. You should check out CCEF. You should check out IBCD for sure. So there's great resources out there. If you've tapped all of those and exhausted their wealth, you're welcome to check out our stuff. Uh, So I have a a personal website at pastordaveonline.org, and I write counseling materials there. And then you can find uh, both of us on social media. I'm on Twitter. Um, at Pastor underscore Dave 619. And uh, Krista is on uh, Instagram.
2: Krista underscore Dunham.
1: Yeah, Krista underscore Dunham. So uh, you're welcome to follow us there and uh, catch glimpses of our life and ministry um, those ways if if it's of interest.
0: Thank you both so much for having this conversation with me. I was thankful to read an advanced copy of this book. You guys, I think, just did a really fantastic job of handling a really difficult topic in a really helpful, compassionate way. And I um, pray that the Lord will get it where it needs to go so that more and more people get the help that Christ offers. Thank you both for the work you've done on this book and for joining me for the show today.
1: Thank you, Christine. Thank you.
0: Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to visit ibcd.org forward slash hope and help. There you can check out the show notes from today's episode. If you enjoyed today's conversation, why not subscribe to the podcast? That way you'll be notified when new weekly episodes release. Also, please don't keep the Hope and Help podcast a secret. If you know someone who could be encouraged by listening to this episode, please do them a favor by sharing it. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help podcast.